Good morning. Always a joy to worship together, isn't it? Take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 8 once again as we continue in our series. For about two years now, the whole world has been on the alert about something we've always really known, and that is that viruses are contagious. We get common colds, we get chicken pox, and we get COVID by being around someone else who is sick with those viruses. But you can be sure we probably didn't come together today to talk about those kind of viruses, but rather the reality that sin is contagious. And when we say sin is contagious today, we're, we're not saying that somehow we can blame someone else for our sin, but rather that we do indeed learn to sin and sin more by, from others because we ourselves are sinners. And so we're very vulnerable to that and we need to recognize that reality. And so sin is a dreadful pandemic that's passed around recklessly all the time in this world. Today, as we look at several kings, some outside of the people of God and some within the nation of Israel and kingdom of Judah, we're going to see how sin is passed from one to another. We're going to see that sometimes it can be a political benefit or a financial benefit, uh, uh, an attempt at peace, marriages, and the ways in which sin becomes contagious is something that we as believers have to acknowledge, not just out there in the world, but how is it affecting us. So the first of several events and king issues in our study today is from outside the nation of Israel and a power transition of, uh, from one evil king to another in the nation of Aram. So 2 Kings 8, verse 7. Elisha, that's God's prophet we've been studying, Elisha went to Damascus and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, Damascus was the capital, was ill. When the king was told, the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Haziel, must be his aide or maybe the next in command. He said to Hazel, take a gift with you and go meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, will I recover from this illness? Hazel went to meet Elisha, taking with him a gift, 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. He went in and stood before him and said, your son, kind of an indication of humility, hopefully, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, will I recover from this illness? Uh, this is the only time we know that Elisha, the prophet of God, ever went outside of Israel. Let's catch up a little bit with the geography here. The uh, passages we study today are about the southern nation called Judah and the northern part of that kingdom of God's people called Israel, so you'll see those terms Israel and Judah, but actually this first event takes place in Aram and at the city of Damascus, and so Elisha, who has really spent his whole ministry in that northern kingdom of Israel, goes up to Damascus to have 
a conversation. It turns out he doesn't actually ever talk to King Ben-Hadad because Haziel comes out to meet him. Ben-Hadad was told, however, that Elisha was on his way, so some scout or border patrol reports that Elisha's coming, and he's somewhat surprised, I'm sure, to hear that, because the two nations of Aram and Israel have been at war uh, repeatedly uh, through the years. In fact, as we studied about the siege of Samaria in chapter 6 and 7, it was probably this Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad II, who was the one who set siege to Samaria, the capital of Israel, and, and was uh, uh, bringing them to the place of submission as, as the, the famine persisted. They were eating donkey heads, remember, and uh, some actually resorted to cannibalism until God stepped in and, and gave this horrible sound blast that scared the Arameans and the, or Syrians, that can also be called, and they, they, they ran back to their country. So that had to be kind of humiliating for Ben-Hadad, to be defeated that way. And then it was either he or his dad, Ben-Hadad I, in 1 Kings 20, who uh, was soundly defeated by Ahab, king of Israel. So when Ben-Hadad hears that Elisha is coming, I suppose he is shivering not only from any fever he might have had, but maybe a bit of fear, because this was the, the powerful man of God who had accomplished various miracles uh, and in fact, it's even possible that he was the king, because he wasn't named, that had sent his commander Naaman to be healed of leprosy. So in that case, he would also know that Elisha was uh, a man who had brought about healings physically. But nonetheless, Ben-Hadad hears about it, and he decides to cover all the bases and says, take a gift. Um, you know, maybe to find his favor, maybe to buy his healing, which would be a pagan mindset on what you would need to do to get a healer to help you. Take a gift. So there's this sense that Ben-Hadad has a fear of Elisha, but also is needing Elisha because he's sick and he's supposedly a healer. He's nervous. And so he sends his representative, this Haziel, verse 9, and Haziel goes to meet him. He's kind of a, uh, Haziel will kind of be a buffer, I suppose, in case uh, Elisha doesn't come friendly. But we take it that Haziel is some kind of a right-hand man. Is he a counselor? Is he the next in command? Is he the, is he the new army commander? Uh, vice president of sorts? We, we don't know. But I'm going to send Haziel, and I'm going to send a gift with him. Get his favor, get his healing, whatever it might be. So he sends 40 camel loads of goods. Some translations say 20 Amazon trucks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it seems like kind of a, an extravagant gift, but we kind of know that, that Elisha is pretty much uninterested in physical material things because back when he healed uh, Naaman of leprosy, he turned down any gifts, and he had come you know, with, with offering silver and gold and just a ton of it, and, and, and uh, robes, and Elisha turned it all down. Naaman, or rather, uh, uh, Haziel comes with this question from the king, will I recover? The, uh, the answer is interesting. Elisha answered, verse 10, go and say to him, go tell your master, you will certainly recover. But the Lord has revealed to me 
that he will in fact die. He stared at him, that's Elisha, stared at him, Haziel, with a fixed gaze until Haziel felt ashamed. Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping, asked Haziel. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire. Talking to Haziel. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Haziel said, How could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. Then then Haziel left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, what did Elisha say to you? Hazel replied, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, spread it over the king's face so that he died. Then Haziel succeeded him as, as king. So he smothers him to death. Um, Elisha's answer is kind of fascinating. seems to tell him to lie and God can put words in a prophet's mouth like that. Um, or, in a sense, it's true, his illness was not terminal, but he would be terminal. His death was certain. But as Elisha is communicating this to Haziel, God is revealing something else to him, and that's why you have this intense stare-down. And Haziel kind of like seems to wither, embarrassed is the way mine says it. But it's like, why are you staring at me like this? And then Elisha, to make it worse, begins to cry. He weeps. Why are you weeping? Because God had revealed to Elisha that it would be this king, Haziel, who would tyrannize Israel cruelly. Haziel would go on to rule some 40 years, and though we don't have many details about uh, what he all did to Israel, we don't doubt that this is true. So Elisha wept, knowing prophetically God was revealing to him what the future would hold. Elisha is a representative of God, so when you see Elisha's tears, you are really seeing God's tears. God weeps at the effects of sin on this world. Uh, So many, so often, almost like blame God for the evil in the world, when in fact God is weeping about the evil in the world. God's the only one who is doing anything about the evil in the world, Uh, preventing, as we'll even see some today, preventing some things from being worse, and ultimately, as we're going to be looking at the next two weeks, Palm Sunday and and Easter, of course, and Good Friday, ultimately it was God who came to solve the problem of evil. He, pro- he solved it because he sent his own son Jesus to pay for the sin, the evil, that perpetuates all the way around the world. So we, we, we see God's heart about sin here. What happens next confirms that Hazel was more than capable of the atrocities that Elisha predicted here. And, and so... He would, you know, set fire and kill and rip open. But Haziel asked, how can your servant, a mere dog, do this? Well, a mere dog was like an ancient Near Eastern way of being kind of self-effacing, you know, a show of humility somehow. And in fact, it was true that Haziel was nobody. He was, he was not from royal birth. There's an Assyrian uh, inscription that exists 
where they say that they refer to Haziel as son of a nobody. So he didn't have the pedigree, he, didn't have the, he wasn't part of this royal uh, dynasty, but he clearly aspired to be king. He had somehow risen close enough that he wanted that position. And so when this prophecy came from Elisha, he seized the opportunity and he smothered his boss and took over. Now, last week we know we looked at the uh, providence of God. So nothing was happening outside the providence of God here. All evil is within that. God was judging Ben-Hadad, who was a cruel king. He would later judge this Haziel, who was a cruel king. He was actually using them to discipline his own people, Israel, in different ways. But as we see the two kings, we see that the craving for power is a sin that just goes from one ruler to the next. This evil craving for power and domination. Of course, in our news the past uh, two months, uh, Putin, an evil ruler on the world stage right now with a lust for power and control, is perpetuating evil on his own people, first of all, and sending his, his troops and then perpetuating it on on uh, Ukraine, and so that every city, home, hospital he bombs, every life he takes is, is like these atrocities. And we hope that he will be replaced by, by someone kinder at some point, but I think we need to realize that until Jesus Christ takes over his rightful place as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, there will not be uh, holiness in, in ruler uh, few political leaders exist that don't crave control because it is only as someone is submitting to the leadership of God that you can lead in humility. And what did Jesus do when he was here on earth? He was the leader who led with humility. And it's only as believers in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting to God, that is where the example can come of authority or leadership that is humble and loving. So husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. It, it's in our homes where, where there can be a, 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 a leadership without this sinful craving for control and domination and, and proving ourselves better and competition. It is in our churches It's then when Christians do get positions in society or government that, that we can imitate Christ and his leadership. But it's what we'd expect in pagan Aram. But as we continue reading we, in, into the next section, the sad thing is that this, the same sinful traits that we see in Aram, a pagan nation, is what's happening among God's people, Israel and Judah. And so we watch with sadness the, the contagious sin that takes place between these two kingdoms. Now, I just want to warn you as we get into this section that uh, it gets really confusing. Be look at, listening for the terms um, Israel and Judah. And we'll, we'll try to sort it out and keep it a little bit clear. So we have Israel, Aram, Israel, and Judah. And so as we read this section, you can maybe follow along. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, there's a Joram that had reigned in Israel. When Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, 
Joram or Jehoram, they're actually the same name, whether your Bible translates them as Joram and Jehoram, they're, they're the same name, that's what gets confusing. Son of Jehoshaphat began his reign as king of Judah, that's to the south. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So he's a king of Judah, but he's living like the kings of Israel. Why? As the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is Joram, king of Judah. You may have uh, followed uh, in previous weeks the fact that in the northern kingdom of Israel, all 19 kings in a row were evil. There was no, no, not one good one. In the southern kingdom, there were quite a few good ones and some evil ones. This is one of the evil ones. So Ahab in the Israel, the northern portions, was like a poster child for evil. And we learn a lot about him in 1 Kings. But now the king of Judah begins to participate in the same evil. Why? His marriage to Ahab's daughter, the king of the north, the king of uh, Israel, is the reason it deteriorated. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And so you begin to have this transmission of the virus of sin in numerous ways. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. Why? Because he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we say, how evil was he? The books of Chronicles often tell the same events as the book of Kings. And if you go to, we won't go there today, but in, first, in Second Chronicles 20, we find out that when this king, Joram, the one who married Ahab's daughter, when this king Joram was given the kingdom and his dad was gone, he killed all his brothers. That's a power play, right? He killed all his brothers. And, this, and that uh, account in Second Chronicles goes on to say that the Lord, in judgment, afflicted him with a disease of the bowels. Then eventually he died. And it says that the people held no funeral for him. And he died to no one's regret. You don't want that on your tombstone. He died to no one's regret. How did this happen? It happened because he began to live like the king of Israel, Ahab. How did that happen? He married his daughter, Athaliah. See, the point is that sinners influence other sinners to sin. Um, this is a complicated genealogy, so I've attempted to draw it out for us on a chart, which will still look complicated, but I think it's going to help us understand this contagious nature of sin. So let's just kind of take a look at this. Israel and Judah, northern and southern kingdoms, we're going to see the contagious sin as we see the kings and queens and alliances of Israel and Judah. If you see a name in gold, that's a godly king according to the scriptures. And a couple of notes is that Joram, as I said, is Jehoram. It's the same name. <clears throat> and that the, gets really complicated because there's two Jorams and there's two Ahaziahs. They the moms and dads just were not that creative in naming their children, and so it does get kind of complicated. 
So on the Judah side, remember godly King David and, and, and mostly godly Solomon. And then a couple more generations, you get down to a, a king named Jehoshaphat. He's going to be a key character that's lying in the background of our story, only mentioned briefly here. If you go to Second Chronicles, you find so much complimentary about the godliness of Jehoshaphat. The things he did for spiritual trans- transformation in his country are amazing. But he also did some very, very foolish things. Well, we're talking now about his son, Joram, who is exceedingly evil and killed his brothers. Okay? How did this all come about? Well, let's go over to the Israel side, and we see another dynasty, an evil dynasty, Omri, whose son is Ahab, and we hear a lot about Ahab. Ahab marries wicked Jezebel, doesn't even marry from within the country. He goes outside to find this evil, idolatrous woman, Jezebel, from the nation of Tyre. Jehoshaphat makes an alliance with Ahab. Yes, they're both Jews across the border. Sounds good. Peace, right? But they are as spiritually opposite as you can get. And yet it's Jehoshaphat who reaches out and makes an alliance with wicked Ahab. Jezebel and Ahab have three kids who uh, all end up ruling. I'm sure they had more, but Ahaziah was the king who we studied in the very first chapter of this series in 2 Kings. He's the one who fell through the roof and uh, his own roof and died. And then Joram, that Joram, not this Joram that we're looking at now, but that Joram, his brother took over and he's the king behind most of the Elisha stories that we've been studying. And then they had a sister that maybe was the most evil one on this chart. We'll study her later in our, our series. Athaliah. Athaliah is the woman that Joram marries. Okay? So that's the combination that creates a lot more evil. Oh, and Jehoshaphat, Joram's dad, also made an alliance with Ahaziah after Ahab had died. That one was a business deal. They decided, Jehoshaphat wanted to make some more money, so he created a shipping enterprise with Ahaziah. Go into business together, make more money, and God sent a storm that destroyed their ships. So they didn't make any money, as it turns out. Joram and Athaliah have a son named Ahaziah, not the same as the uncle Ahaziah on the other side. But they have a son named Ahaziah, and uh, not, that's the other king that we'll study today. And not surprisingly, guess what? He makes an alliance with Joram. If all this wasn't bad enough, and we're trying to see how does this stuff happen, you can actually go back one more generation. Jehoshaphat's dad was also a really godly king, a lot of great things that he did. He's kind of the one who started this. He made an alliance with, guess who? Aram, the nation we just looked at, Ben-Hadad and Haziel. And he made a political alliance and said, why don't you come and join me in this battle? And we see the impact of those alliances on the two kings that we study today. Joram here now, and then a few moments later, we'll be looking at Ahaziah. As we see these decisions... I'm concerned about Joram. I'm concerned about Ahaziah. They are wicked people. But you know what concerns me more as as we gather as a body of Christ? It bothers me more, I guess, about Asa and Jehoshaphat. Because they were believers. They were godly people who did many godly things and made some really foolish decisions about their 
associations with others. I don't know what value there really is sometimes in blaming immoral Hollywood and corrupt politicians or public schools or internet and, and the government and everything in the culture is so yeah, of course they are. But what about the Aces and the Jehoshaphats that make alliances and, and submit themselves to the influences of these? Because these are the things that I think are affecting Christian homes and churches and Christian organizations. Second Chronicles 18 tells us the sad reality that you know who I, whose idea it was for Joram, Tamara, Athaliah? It was Daddy Jehoshaphat's idea. He made an alliance by marriage. He planned this thing to bolster his alliance with Ahab. A prophet confronts Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles 19, to and says to Jehoshaphat, why are you helping the wicked and loving those that God hates? Why are you, why are you helping the wicked? What would we do for financial gain? What would we excuse and indulge in because it's important to our career? Who do we admire? Why do we admire them? Why do we envy them? What do we really want? See, that gets down to what's our core motivation? What are our priorities? Back to verse 18 about Joram. He, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. Who we marry matters. Because sin is contagious. Our closest friends matter. Your children's closest friends matter. Who we admire matters. Obviously, children at some point make their own decisions, of course, and there's no way that as a parent we can guarantee their choices and alliances at some point. The only thing we can control, if you will, is our own priorities and our own core desires. So what happened to Asa and Jehoshaphat? Otherwise godly men. I think a big part of it comes down to not trusting God. Asa wanted military power, and so he made that first alliance with the king of Aram. That's how he addressed his fears. Jehoshaphat wanted to be at peace with Ahab. So he married off his son to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel? So it makes us ask, what do we fear? And therefore, who do we trust? So because of what we fear determines where we will go for advice. That's who we trust. And so are we, are we going to the world for, well, this is how you need to handle that situation. The world's answer is typically things like revenge or whatever is more money, things like that. Who or what is influencing how you think? Is it the world or is it the word? And if you are committed to the word of God as your influence, then you will seek close alliances with other people who see the word of God as their authority. 
That's why Christ designed the church. That's why you're here this morning, I hope, is that you realize that after a whole week of the world, we really do need this connection with, with our true authority and worshiping Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the King of Kings. And, and we need the connection with, with one another. Because God is going to use these relationships to help us build a stronger resistance to the virus of sin. A greater awareness of where we are making unwise alliances, perhaps. Joram did evil, verse 18, partly because of his own sin, of course, but partly because of his dad's compromise or desires. Now, verse 19 gives us some good news, if you will. Uh, it says that, nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. In other words, you'd think he could. He, that's God, had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. So God spared Judah as a nation in spite of Joram to keep a promise to David. Who did God spare? Not Joram. He died of the bowel disease, right? He didn't spare Joram, but he spared the people he ruled, Judah. Why? Because of a godly ancestor who reigned 150 years before. King David, never underestimate the lasting power of your life and influence as a committed Christian. You can do nothing about your parents or grandparents if they didn't follow the Lord. It does no good to blame a previous generation, but it makes all the sense in the world to take seriously what it means to be the previous generation. You are a previous generation, whether you have children or not, you are in a church filled with children. You are a previous generation. And God can honor your commitment many years later. I've shared the story before. I know of my grandpa Weens. He died when I was 11 years old. But at six, year old, six years old, he was the one who led me to faith in Christ in a hospital waiting room. Uh, grandpa Weens is a, was a, a farmer uh, committed to the Lord honoring his marriage, uh, providing leadership in his church, serving, raising godly children. And he was available when his time was right for me to be able to understand the gospel. And so he was that person for me. God honored David's commitment all these years later. He promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. Now, Technically, what that is referring to is something we studied just before Christmas when we talked about the Davidic covenant. It was the promise to God of God to David that one of his descendants would reign forever. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes through this line, including Joram and Ahaziah. It's the line of David. And God protected, preserved, and spared them some of the judgment that could have happened because of his promise all those years later to maintain a lamp. A lamp. What a great picture that we can be a lamp to following generations. Life is short as we say a little more and more as we get older and older. 
But in God's scheme of things, that's okay because our influence doesn't run out when our life does. We can be bummed out about aging if we are living for this life. Understandably, because it means that we have less time to enjoy things and less health with which to enjoy them. But when you see yourself as part of the larger body of Christ, and particularly this church, and particularly your family, when you see yourself like that, then you are continually able to actually multiply the value of your life the older you get. So instead of seeing your life as a cup that is draining as the years go by, it's almost out, you know, there's less years left, your life is instead a cup that is endlessly supplied spiritually so that you can pour into somebody else who pours into somebody else who pours into somebody else. And it continues after you. We're on a train that's going to eventually arrive at our destination of heaven, but the train goes on as you influence others. It's a lamp. You can be a lamp to someone sitting within six, ten feet of you. You can be a lamp to someone in your adult Bible fellowship or Bible study. If you encourage them to, re- to resist the virus of sin, you can be a lamp when you invite kids to a kids build or you're helping teach or assist and whether it's a nursery or, or some children's ministry on Wednesday night, you become a part of that ongoing lamp. It's, it's good news in the midst of bad. David benefited his nation 150 years later, but not Joram himself. And so we read of two of his failures politically before he went to face God himself. Verse 20, In the time of Joram, Jehoram, either way, Edom rebelled against Judah, that's a nation to the south, and set up its own king. So Jehoram went to Zaire uh, with all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. His army, however, fled back home. So they escaped. He didn't die at this point, but he lost. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion against Judah. And then like a little note to the side, Libna revolted at this same time. And then verse 23 and 24 say there's more events, and eventually his son Ahaziah takes over as king. Short version is kind of all we need. Edom, this nation to the south, had been successfully conquered by ancestor King David, right? And so that nation had been paying tribute to Israel, or to Judah, all these years, but under wicked Joram, they revolted and got away. Uh, Libna is an interesting one because Libna is a city, not a, not a nation. It's a city within Judah. Maybe if they found it, it's only like 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And they broke away from Judah and like set up their own independent little state. Kind of like if Chicago decided to stop being Illinois and start their own state, which I've read some think is a good idea. But it's a terrible failure on the part of Jehoram to lose this neighboring country's tribute, a border nation, revolts, and to actually lose one of your own cities. Was this God's judgment on his evil ways? Well, it sure wasn't God's blessing. We move to the next generation. Ahaziah, verse uh, 
25. We could uh, go back to the chart if that helps you <laughs> follow along. By the way, this chart and a couple of the other verses and things we'll have later on are available in the back uh, table as, as uh, copies of the, of the PowerPoints. In the twelfth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, that Joram, Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one whole year. His mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. Some translations say son-in-law. It's a term that can be specific, or sometimes it just means related to. In this case, he's actually a grandson of Ahab, if you look on that side. So that's who he is. His mother's name is Athaliah. Ahab's daughter, uh, she's another whole story we'll get to in chapter 11 eventually, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's always the issue. He's an unbeliever who does evil in the eyes of the Lord. But if you'll notice, he had two grandpas. Ahaziah had a grandpa Jehoshaphat and a grandpa Ahab. So he had a choice. He had a choice which one he would follow spiritually. Jehoshaphat had a lot going for him, though he made these foolish alliances. He had a choice. We always choose if we will follow the godly or ungodly examples around us. Let's say you have two close friends. One of them is a believer who loves and serves the Lord. The other is an unbeliever who lives quite selfishly. And uh, you have coffee and conversation with this one. and You have coffee and conversation with this one. And certain activities with that one and certain activities with that one. But there you are with these two friends. And you realize there's a real difference in worldview and values and goals and priorities. And so you do have to decide then at some point, am I like this person or am I like this person? King Ahaziah, living in Judah, uh, had uh, the temple there. There were priests there. God sent prophets there. They were, there were still descendants of David, godly descendants of David all around. And he had to decide. But is righteousness contagious? Or is sin contagious? Sin is more contagious in that sense because it's a supernatural thing when we learn righteousness from God and, and take the encouragement from God's people. You can, you can catch COVID from people who have COVID, but you can't catch wellness from someone who is well when you are sick. We catch sinfulness very easily. You just hang around ungodly people doing ungodly things, admire them because you envy them, hang around them, and pretty soon you think like them. And so it doesn't even maybe surprise us that Ahaziah decided to take after his mom's side of the family spiritually. And so it doesn't even surprise us in these last two verses, 28 and 29, where we find that this Ahaziah decides to make, guess what, another alliance with his uncle Joram. 
Verse 28, Ahaziah went with Joram, son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. So now they're fighting the Arameans. Remember the guy who uh, smothered his predecessor? The Arameans wounded Joram. That's the Joram of son of Ahab. So King Joram returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on, inflicted on him at Ramoth in his battle with Haziel, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. So they're good friends. They, 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 they're both evil. They did war together. Both wicked. They get along and influenced one another. You can be sure in that direction. Ahaziah could have decided, I have a grandfather and I have a great-grandfather who loved the Lord. I've got the law of God. I have priests. I'm going to follow the Lord. Instead, he decided to follow his mom and his mom's brothers and his mom's dad and their example. You know, everyone in this room, we're making those choices all the time. Who's going to influence us? Scripture has a lot to say about it. Let's take a look at some of these scriptures, the influence of friends. 1 Kings 15, 31, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. I don't know if you can say it any more briefly than that. Proverbs 2, here's, here's Solomon reaching out to his son, telling him, don't be mis- or rather, wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil. Wisdom will do that. Godly wisdom. Wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. So what should his son do? Walk in the ways of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. Pay real close attention to whose ways you are walking in because of who you are walking with. Proverbs 22, do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. Hang around angry people, you get angry. It it, it leaks from them to you. It's a virus. Someone that's always angry, you, you feel like you need to buy into whatever they're always angry about. Instead, Psalm 1 Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. That's the idea. You're blessed if you aren't like hanging out with them. But instead, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. They're people who are, are, are focused on the word of God. That's why we need this. That's why someone needs you. That's that's why we need to be thinking of ourselves as having friends who we impact towards Christ. there There should be a handful of people you know through, whether it's this church or other Christians, but a Bible study, ABF, that you know they are praying for you. And you are praying for them. Because sin is that dangerous and contagious. And so we need to band together. Does this mean that we should not have good friendships with unbelievers? That's probably a question that's been in our mind as we 
think about this subject. Please understand, we are called to live at peace with all men. In other words, don't be the problem. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, neighbors of all kinds. We should be very intentional about building friendships with unbelievers to fulfill the commission to go and make disciples of all nations, people who follow Christ. So, to friend or not to friend someone in a close relationship, how do you decide that? You have to decide whether you will be someone who will be influenced by them away from Christ or whether you have the heart of God to be influencing them towards Christ and draw them into a relationship with Christ and they can be part of the body of Christ encouraging one another. I'm pretty sure we can figure out if we pray about it, who's going to influence who. So we need to evaluate our influences and influencers. If you're looking for influencers, don't go to Instagram, okay? The top 10 might not be the right choice. Some questions. Who are your closest friends, the ones who influence you? What are your friends' priorities? Are they the same as yours? Are they the same as God's? Do your unbelieving friends influence you, or do you influence them? Who or what is influencing your children, if not godly people? And to the degree our children are home and sitting in the row alongside you, then you have opportunity to help them in this principle. What activities or priorities keep you from making close friends in the church family? Is this, is, this a, is this a priority that you would be drawing strength and giving strength to one another? What's keeping you from that and what changes would need to take place for you to pursue good and godly influences and priorities? We, we are not islands. We can't do this by ourselves. We really need one another and someone really needs you because sin is contagious. We decide how close we'll get to the virus of sin when we decide our diet of entertainment or when we pick our closest companions because these people, these activities, these forms of input and entertainment feed either our fleshly sinful nature or are able to draw us and feed our spiritual life. And so will we commit to investing in those influences and influencers who will grow us to be more like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so prone to wonder, and uh, we know that our enemy around us is influencing the world and its many attractions. We know that we all suffer from the influence of sin. Help us, Lord, to grow in our resistance because we grow in our closeness with you. That in your law we meditate day and night that, that there is a purging that would take place in our hearts to see sin for what it is, to be honest with ourselves about our motives, and to then desire first and then seek after 
those things and those relationships that will grow us to be more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.